Uh, but right now, let's uh, take some time to center ourselves and be fully present here in this moment. Uh, so if it helps you, you can close your eyes. Take some deep breaths. You've been breathing all day long, likely without any thought about it. How amazing God made your body. Take a moment to do a brief body scan. Start at the top of your head, work your way down to the jaw, neck, shoulders arms, the fingers, chest, your stomach, all the way down the legs and your toes. Just check in with your body without judgment. You find yourself holding on to any tension. Just breathe through it and release that If I'm not mistaken, I believe that all three of us, Becky, Paige, and I, have uh, characterized our time in here in, in the book of Job as wrestling with Scripture in community. Uh, discernment taking place uh, in the context of this community that we've formed this semester. And, and, and really, I, I've seen our job uh, as facilitators of the class uh, 
less less as teachers and, and more as facilitators, uh, moderators, if you will, in, in providing a, a safe space uh, in which we can do that, that wrestling. And I, I want to thank you all again for being such willing participants, uh, your, your willingness to, to speak up and create some awesome dialogue about Job and this topic of suffering that, that we've had this semester. But one of the ideas of wrestling with scripture is, is looking at a passage from many, many different angles or perspectives, which is why we do this in community, so that we can get the perspective of, of multiple voices. In fact, the rabbis teach that there are 70 faces of the Torah to emphasize this very point, that there are multiple ways in which scripture may be interpreted. Not just one single truth that we're trying to get to the bottom of. We try and take it and roll it around in our hands, examining from, from every side. Uh, so today, I, I want to do a, a bit of a survey of some additional perspectives or models on the book of Job and, and really on, on suffering and its role in our lives in general. Uh, sharing with you uh, s some of the resources that have been helpful to me that give us a little bit different angle uh, on this book. This triangle is a, is a model that I encountered in an Old Testament survey course uh, that I've taken that that really helps me uh, see the big picture of Job. Three different claims are made in the book. Um, one, that God is just. Another, that Job is righteous. And a third one, the, the retribution principle. You remember having talked about this several weeks as well. Uh, this principle that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. Um, when the book opens and everything's going swell in Job's life, all three of these are assumed to be true. Right? But after Job's calamities, it becomes logically impossible to maintain all, all, all three of these. Um, each of these parties that I have listed up here in the, in the boxes, um, they... They defend one of these corners. I think I've got them in the most logical corner. Um, and then they accept one of the other premises, one of the other claims, but they forfeit one of them. So, for example, uh, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they're defending this retribution principle, right? That the righteous prosper, the wicked suffer. And they're maintaining that God is just. So they're forfeiting Job's righteousness. Now, you've done something to offend God, Job. What is it? That's all you have to do is come up with what it is that you've done to offend Job, to offend God. Um, what about Job? What's, what's, he, what's his perspective or his angle on all of this? Yeah. It feels blameless. Yeah. From his perspective. Right. Uh, right. Exactly. Uh, so his primary position is that I've done nothing. If you look at, go back to the first five verses of, of the book, 
I haven't done anything different than when I was being blessed. So what what has changed? And he is, in in essence, by saying that, also defending the retribution principle, right? He's saying, uh, well, why is this happening to me? Because I have been good. I haven't changed my behavior. I'm acting exactly the same way I was, as I was before. So what he winds up, yeah, go ahead. I'll come back. He's also questioning the other two Yes, and, and, and so that, especially the God is just one, because we've seen that he's he's trying to put God on trial, right? This is the way I understand the universe works, and yet you're not going along with it, God. So what's wrong? Would um, uh, he, you know, he he asked for as we were looking through uh, his um, various dialogues. He's asking for a mediator, someone that can be his lawyer in this court in which he's putting God, he's, he's, he's accusing God. And, and even one of the verses that uh, we've used uh, to, to create one of our hymns, I know that my Redeemer lives. Uh, if you look closely, that's in the context of him asking for a lawyer, asking for a mediator. So I don't think he's talking about God when he says the Redeemer. I think he's saying there's someone out there that can defend me in front of God. All right. And then what about Elihu? Who, who, who primarily covered Elihu? Was that you, Paige? Yes. Anyone, any thoughts? Remember what Elihu's perspective was? Well, it's a little more complicated. It's, uh, we're not quite as... Elihu seems to go all, jump, jump around and go all over the place uh, a little bit. But primarily, he's defending the justice of God. He is uh, uh, saying that, that God is just, and if there's something wrong, it's wrong with the other two perspectives, although he defends those both a little bit as well. So the model starts to break down just a little bit here, uh, simply because Elihu's somewhat more uh, conflicted, we, we might say. But generally, Elihu is arguing that human wisdom is limited, so that Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they can't understand God well enough, so we can't therefore assume that God is not just. It's impossible for humans to pass judgment on God's justice. But then what about the other character that we haven't talked about here? What's God's perspective on this? God doesn't speak until we get to the last five chapters. We covered those in the last month or so. Oh, okay, sorry. But you know, he doesn't respond yes. until <laughs> the last five chapters. And what he says in the first chapter is the same as Job's okay. righteousness. Okay, yeah, exactly. Does he change that in the last five chapters? I think first he just wants to show his position. And how we're so limited so much he knows that we don't know. Right. Just making that clear. Yep. 
Okay. I think in the first chapter, or whatever, uh, God with Satan is very confident in Job. Yes. Uh, in his faith. And obviously that gets worn out. Uh, so I think God's position is that he has a lot of confidence in his people that are, that are walking a blameless life. Mm-hmm. He does seem to have a lot of, of confidence. Uh, so I, I would say he, 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 does, he doesn't change anything about his original statement that, that uh, Job is righteous or blameless. Um, and in fact, in the last chapter, he comes back and he condemns Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but he doesn't condemn Job, right? Even though Job had said, had accused him of being unjust. He doesn't in him, Job. But I think, overall, God just sort of uh, discards the triangle. Uh, and he's saying it's not really about any of these things. God doesn't address whether he's just or not. What God comes back and says is, I'm wise. What this really is about is my wisdom. And I'm wiser than you are. And therefore, you don't have the right to question my justice. So he doesn't really address the justice part of it. Um, but, you know, just coming back and saying that his wisdom exceeds that of all, all five of the, of the other characters, such that they can't fully comprehend why suffering happens. Any other thoughts on this model itself? Does that help you guys as much as I think it helps me to... See Joe. Um, Richard Rohr is uh, whose teachings uh, really resonate with with me. Uh, has presented a a model of human and spiritual development that that he calls order, disorder, and reorder. Uh, and he he's using these to talk about the phases of life that we go through. Uh, not that they're necessarily distinct and, and, and certainly that they, they do overlap as well. Uh, something that, that gradually happens to us over the course of life. Uh, we don't always progress from one of these phases to the other. In fact, Rohr says it's very easy for conservatives to get stuck in the first phase, in the order phase. And it's easy for progressives to get stuck in the second phase, the disorder phase. Um, But in general, he's proposing this as a way of progressing through our life in order to get closer and closer to God. Um, We could even think of this as a way of characterizing the the meta-narrative of history as it's presented in the Bible, that after initial chaos or disorder, God creates a sense of order, right? Uh, He calls it good. Maybe it's not perfect, perfect, but it's good. It's a sense of order until the fall, or as Becky's pointed out, John Mark Hicks likes to call it the tumble, until the fall. But then God starts reestablishing order, starts reordering uh, 
the world. Um, first of all, by saving Noah and his family, right? But this is where things sort of go back and forth. Uh, we don't strictly stay in reorder. We go back to disorder with the Tower of Babel and uh, various But with the call of Abraham, you could consider the call of Abraham a way of establishing a new order or a reorder. Uh, consider the law of Moses and what Moses brought, a way of establishing a reorder. So these are progressive steps on the path to, uh, to reordering God's creation. Uh, and certainly, for us as Christians, uh, with Jesus, the reorder has been inaugurated, uh, even if it has not been fully consummated yet. Um, another way we could use this model is, is even in thinking about the, the life of Jesus. Uh, uh, maybe to begin with, and especially before he uh, started his public teaching, uh, his life was ordered, sort of what was to be expected of him. But then gradually, as he started teaching, and at least some of society wasn't following along with his teaching, disorder began to happen until the disorder culminated in his crucifixion. So we could think of his crucifixion as three days in the tomb as, as being disorder. But then reorder occurs with resurrection. <coughs> And in fact, resurrection is a good synonym for, for this reorder. So I think this is a, a helpful model for us to, to think about, especially when we're thinking about suffering. We'll try to come back to that in, in, in just a few moments. Uh, Paul Ricoeur uh, talks about a very similar thing in our phases of life, but he characterizes it as a first naivete, uh, that we don't question God to, to start with. We don't question our faith. But various things happen to us. Uh, life happens to us. Suffering happens to us. Perhaps we go deeper in our study of, of scripture or religion, or, or perhaps even we read the book of Job <laughs> through the first 32 chapters. Um, we do something that gets us to a point of what he calls a critical distance, where we distance ourselves from God or from our faith. And then he believes that for many of us, we then have another phase in life that's exactly synonymous with Rohr's reorder that he calls a second naivete, where again, we, we, we get to a point we don't have to question any longer. Uh, we're satisfied with not knowing the answers. Walter Brueggemann, Brueggemann uh, uh, very well-known, uh, intelligent Old Testament scholar who's written a number of commentaries on, on the Psalms uses three, these three terms, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation to characterize all of the Psalms. That a Psalm is one of initial orientation or oftentimes, especially perhaps in a Psalm of Lament, it's one of disorientation, but in often cases, uh, we see a re reorientation occurring either in an entire psalm or often near the end of a, a psalm that had presented some disorientation, right? And, and, and further, he uses these terms or, or similar ones to uh, sort of categorize the whole Hebrew Bible and Jewish history, if you want to think about it, that 
orientation or order is somewhat equivalent to the Torah, law and order. And then disorientation or disorder occurs with the prophets and what they come and teach uh, uh, their fellow Israelites. But a reorientation, a reordering occurs in wisdom literature. Uh, and I think we could say, having gone through Job, that that's not true of the entire book. Uh, it's, it's only at the end that, that we see that. And I'm not sure I would say that was true of, of Proverbs uh, as well. But, but the, you know, he's brushing with, with, with uh, uh, broad strokes. Uh, making these large, large categories. It almost seems like that applies directly to the three books of wisdom literature too. Proverbs, it really does. Orientation, um, ah, Ecclesiastes as disorientation, and then Job as reorientation. Very, very good point. I had not thought about that. Yep, that's these, excellent. These are like the movies we see nowadays. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Disorder. Something new. That's right. Not every movie I see on, <laughs> on Netflix is like this. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's like our lives are wired for that. And oftentimes today, you'll you'll hear, uh, especially maybe in more progressive Christian circles, uh, discussion around our faith journey in terms of initial construction and our having to go through some level, some phase of deconstruction in order to get back to a reconstruction. So. So yeah, so these are all different ways of saying the same thing or a very similar thing, but I wanted to apply it to the book of Job. I hadn't thought about what you just said, uh, Becky, about Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, but even within the book of Job itself, right? We've got in the first five verses, when again, everything's going well for Job, uh, orientation or order. There's, um, uh, there's perfect order in Job's universe at, at, at this time. Uh, uh, until God allows the Satan to screw up his life. And then, from Job 1.6, the, the, bulk, the bulk of the, 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 the book is disorientation. But then in the last five chapters, that's, that's when the reorientation, the reorder occurs. Any other thoughts, comments on looking at the book or looking at all of life or looking at all of history or all of the Bible or a section of the Bible or the latest movie we watched on Netflix in this way? I think this is really helpful to see how pervasive this is in culture and in scripture and the way scripture is set up because I think oftentimes when we move into disorder or disorientation or deconstruction or whatever you want to call it, um, we can start to think there's something wrong with us. Yes. Um, other people can make us feel that we're that, that they're worried about our faith, or that um, you know we start to worry about our own doubts and our own fears and our own anxieties. And sometimes that puts us. We just ignore the process altogether, and we go back to what was comfortable before. Um, when I, I love how you said we can substitute this last one, we can substitute resurrection for any yes. of those. Yes. Because if we don't move through that disorientation phase, then we never get to resurrection. Um, and it's it's a natural part of human progression. It's a natural part of the spiritual journey. And I think sometimes we can be so fearful of that that we, we stop ourselves from moving into something better Yes. because of that middle part. So. And, and that's, th thank you. I think that's 
That's that's exactly right. And I think that's that's one of the reasons uh, that Rohr says that conservatives can tend to get stuck in order because we built this, even if it's a house of cards, we built this house of cards and we're afraid if we pull one card that our entire belief system will fall, right? Progressives, on the other hand, yeah, they're they're willing to, to, to let the house of cards fall, but they they stay stuck there. They don't realize that they, that we can come back to a reorder that, in some ways, is that first naivete. Come back to a naivete that's 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 like the first. I, uh, what I keep seeing is order when it is life and then death and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that pattern. Yes, yes, it, it is the pattern. You think of death as just like one type of thing that happens. That's right. It's something that happens every yep. day. Yep. No, no, mm-hmm. thank you. That's, that, that's part of the point here, that this is the pattern of all creation, right? Yes. It probably does for and most like of us. Said, Becky, because I know personally for me, I have retired and I'm trying to figure out where I feel like God wants me. And being in a job that's so boring is in some ways easy. And now this disorientation is difficult as you go daily, more mm-hmm. daily, trying to figure out. Kind of look yep. And again, that one of the emphases being that the lines are fuzzy between them, right? They're not distinct phases, and we go back and forth. But one of the important characteristics of this third phase, resurrection, reorientation, reorder, reconstruction, whatever you want to call it, is that a reordered lives, a reordered life reaches what I would call a unitive consciousness. Um, we in the West, we, we tend to think of things as black or white. Um, we have all of these dualities, or what Lee Camp likes to call uh, false dichotomies. Uh, they're, they're primarily a product of, of modernity and the Western age of enlightenment, or reason, or rationality. Uh, we don't historically see this kind of thought in, uh, in, in Eastern thought. Um, some, some examples are our tendency to make a distinction, draw a duality, make a dichotomy between the secular and the sacred. When I think someone in that third phase would see everything as sacred, see all of life as sacred, see all of creation as sacred. Uh, even public versus private, a fact versus a belief or a value that we might hold, state versus church. This starts to get into many of our political conversations today. Certainly faith versus science. Again, a con. Um, scientists making a distinction between matter versus energy. Fletcher, if you start to talk with the physicist, they're breaking those that dichotomy down, right? Or we might we might say matter versus spirit. Uh, our, our tendency in the West to make the, a distinction between the body and the soul, when I think the centering prayer that Becky led us in 
at the beginning of class this morning emphasizes that we can't make that distinction. You know, everything that we do spiritually, we do with our body. We can't make this body-mind or body-soul uh, distinction. Uh, even good versus evil. You know, um, if we went back to our triangle, Job claiming to be righteous, was he sinless? Uh, God said he was blameless, but I mean, did he did he had he achieved perfect goodness or righteousness? No, there's a gray area again in between, right? Uh, when the uh, young teach when the young lawyer came to up to Jesus and called him good teacher, and Jesus replied, "Who is good except my Father in heaven?" Right. Uh, and even this this retribution principle that that we've been it's again this is a dichotomy that the righteous prosper the unrighteous suffer no we're we're breaking down that dichotomy as well uh, a reordered life one in this third phase comes to accept that everything is not black and white uh, and we learn to find a level of of contentment in the tension between the two extremes um, we, we learn to be content in, in the gray. We learn to find a new kind of knowing in the unknowing. And I think the reason, the reason I, I'm going into looking at these different models is I feel like this is where we have to land when it comes to suffering and the question of suffering. No, we don't understand it, but we're okay with not understanding. We're okay with, with the mystery. And, and maybe more than just okay, the, that, maybe that's where we really find God, in the mystery, in the still small voice, uh, in the unknowing. Going back to Rohr, um, he leans toward a much more Eastern Orthodox definition of, of salvation, as, as do I. That salvation has much more to do with what happens to us in this life and our going through this journey that we're talking about than it does with the afterlife. It's, it's about a journey uh, of growing closer and closer to God, of achieving a, a type of union with God uh, roughly equivalent to this third or reorder phase. A, a journey like what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3 where he says, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory or as the King James said from glory to from one, one level of glory to another um, and with that definition with that definition he says we really only reach that union through either great love or great suffering um, which is what we see with, with Job, right? Job arrived there after going through great suffering. Um, and, and, and God setting him straight, really. Uh, but based upon his short responses to God in the final chapters, uh, he seems to find contentment in not knowing in realizing that God's ways and God's wisdom is above his. Um, he finds a contentment in the mystery of God. 
So we reach a point of no longer trying to explain the suffering, but a posture of uh, acceptance, knowing that God suffered in the crucifixion, and knowing that God suffers with each one of us when we're suffering. Um, I'm going to read you a fairly lengthy passage from Roar's writing on the subject, because he says it much better than I could summarize it. Two universal paths of transformation have been available to every human being God has created, great love and great suffering. These are offered to all. They level the playing fields of all the world religions. Only love and suffering are strong enough to break down our usual ego defenses, crush our dualistic thinking, and open us up to mystery. In my experience, they, like nothing else, exert the mysterious chemistry that can transmute us from a fear-based life into a love-based life. None of us are exactly sure why. We do know that words, even good words, or fine theology cannot achieve that on their own. No surprise that the Christian icon of redemption is a man offering love from a crucified position. Love and suffering are part of most human lives. Without any, without any doubt, they are the primary spiritual teachers more than any Bible, church, minister, sacrament, or theologian. Wouldn't it make sense for God to make divine truth so readily available? If the love of God is perfect and victorious, wouldn't God offer every human being equal and universal access to the divine as love and suffering do? <clears throat> this is what Paul seems to be saying to the Athenians in his brilliant sermon at the Areopagus. All can seek the deity, feeling their way toward God and succeeded in finding God. For God is not far from any of us, since it is in God that we live and move and have our being. What a brilliant and needed piece of theology to this day. Love is what we long for and were created for. In fact, love is what we are as an outpouring from God. But suffering often seems to be our opening to that need, that desire, and that identity. Love and suffering are the main portals that open the mind space and the heart space. Either can come first, breaking us into breath and depth and communion. Almost without exception, great spiritual teachers will have strong and direct guidance about love and suffering. If we never go there, we will not know these essentials. We'll try to work it out, we'll try to work it all out in our heads, but our minds alone can't get us there. We must love with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, and our whole strength. Finally, there's a straight line between love and suffering. If we love greatly, it's fairly certain we will soon suffer because we have somehow given up control to another. This is my simple definition of suffering whenever we are not in control. Um, yes. It is not from a book, it's from a, 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 a daily email that Richard Rohr sends out. Uh, so, I don't know why I put the, that back in, but I, I think that idea of suffering is whenever we are not in control uh, aligns quite well with uh, one of my favorite quotes from Kate Bowler's memoir that we've mentioned several times this, 
this semester, and it may be the same one that you yeah. mentioned last week. Yes. yes. <laughs> Control is a drug, and we're all hooked. Whether or not we believe in the prosperity gospel's assurance that we can master the future with our words and attitudes. And another quote from that book that fits well with, with where we've gone today. She's quoting a friend with, who has cancer. I've known Christ in so many good times, she said sincerely and directly, and now I will know him better in his sufferings. And what book is that? <clears throat> Everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. Uh, anyone else read read this book? I said jump. Yeah. And anything in particular that, that jumped out at you? That... And I listened to it um, as an audio book, you know, through Tennessee Reads. So I, I just kind of did it because it was available and yep. I was traveling. Yep. And I didn't know what I was getting into. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I really didn't know her story. And then, you know, when you get chance to stop and know her story. <coughs> and I feel like I'm redundant to what y'all said, but I've kind of grown up thinking if I went to church three times a week, if I went to Sunday school, if I prayed and read, like, my life would be good. Yeah. And that is just the falsest thing ever. Yeah. So listening to her, but her hope, like, she's filled with hope. Mm -hmm. And I read some of her stuff now, you know, she'll post different things. Yep. And she's a young child. She's not old like me where she's lived her life. And she's just still filled with hope in her suffering. Yep. Yep. And so that's probably what I came away with the most okay. I wanted to go back to Richard Moore and something you said, but like, Reading Richard Rohr's The Universal Christ, like, <clears throat> Jesus Christ is in everything. It's yes. not secular. It's not, he's everywhere. Right. All is sacred. Right. And I, I remember one part of it when he talked about a bark of a tree, or either I heard him on a podcast, and I thought, well, I never thought about that being sacred. But it's a different mindset right. of where he is. Right. Yep, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, the universal Christ, seeing Christ in the entire cosmos. Yeah, absolutely. I love that passage that you read about love and suffering and um, <clears throat> those are being the paths to um, to something greater, the paths to, to God almost. Um, so Kate Bowler has a podcast called Everything Happens, um, and uh, if you like podcasts, go check it out because it's fantastic, I think. Uh, you know, a lot of podcasts are life hacky or, um, you know, murder mysteries or, or whatever, but this is, she's just interviewing people about their suffering, and in every episode, they just immediately jump into the deep end. And I think that um, it's, you know, as I was listening to that, I was thinking that because of her suffering, she has this capacity to love uh, in, a, in a way that lets her be open and vulnerable with people um, so quickly, in a way that, um, you know, so often regarded, or we only give a little bit uh, because of her suffering, because of her awareness of how um, 
quickly this life could end. Uh, she just she has this ability to jump straight into the deep end that I love. I haven't listened to any of those, so I'll have to do that. I think my only problem with all this is it kind of seems to wrap everything up in with a bow. <laughs> and that's not the way suffering is, and that's not the way grief is. And, you know, you have those days where you really want to love God, but she's not able to. You know, and I think um, that's, that's okay. It, and it is okay. and I, I, I think over time I've gotten this picture of God as like just covered in luck all the time because he's there walking with us, you know, in our worst moments. But I think sometimes if you tell a person who's that sad, you know, find God's love in your suffering, you're not ready for that, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, it is okay. Um, I just think we need to remember that too. Yeah, I, absolutely. That's that's why the lines are fuzzy. We're not, I don't think any of us, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think any of us are going to get to that reordered third phase and stay there. We're going to step back into disorder. And one of the, the comforting things is that's where Job was uh, throughout his, you know, his accusations uh, to, to God, and God did not condemn him for that. God did not condemn him, even though he told God, you're not just. I think I think that's a great point because we can we can almost try to uh, turn that back into control. Okay, well if I suffer in this way, then I can control it, and then I can be this kind of person, or I can have this kind of relationship with God. Uh, and so even even in the midst of being like, okay, well I'm going to let go, we can still try to control that situation as well. And there's there's no point on your Christian journey where you just arrive. Uh, I, mean, I think not on this world. I, that's right. Here. That's right. Right. And I think too. Like so many times, we don't even understand what, it, what emotion we're feeling. Much mm-hmm. like, less being able to call it grief or suffering. You know, that's a whole different level that
Job for one reason is to teach our children because when you're in the middle of suffering, you don't want to hear this. It's like you have to know about it before you suffer because that's when it brings you comfort and you can just free fall in God's blood. I mean, you can just let it go and say, God, you're in control. I'm out of it. I'm free falling. Catch me when I'm hit <laughs> before I hit bottom. Yeah. Resurrection is the more It's not something that we control. It's not something that we do. So when I check the three orientation is not typically brought on by some particular act. It's usually a grace that I And I think that's why Roar says that great love or great suffering are what? And again, those are not in our control, right? So. To me, it's a little discouraging to hear that suffering, <clears throat> that things don't happen for a reason. Mm. I mean, I always feel like, isn't that in the big scheme of things, things do happen. There is reason for why we suffer or whatever that I think for me it's helpful to know that I can make meaning out of suffering without having to say, well, my nephew died for a reason. Um, I have seen the meaning that my brother and his wife have made out of his life um, and how it's shaped them. But it didn't happen so that they would be better people or so that their marriage would be strengthened because that's, that's scary. Well, and I think it's true too. It makes God like a, it makes God very cool. Yeah, exactly. You know, of like if this, if God is creating this, or that—that's what I hear a lot of times in spiritual direction of people in deep suffering, and they'll say, "Well, I know God's teaching me a lesson," and it's like, "Ooh, um, that's that's not what it says." You know, it says God does create that meaning, and He does bring beautiful things out of Ashley. But it doesn't say that he's, he's making this happen to punish you so that you will learn this. And so it's 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 a nuance, but it's a very significant nuance. Um, that Jesus is with you. And I go back to that scene at Lazarus's tomb where it talks about Jesus wept. And before that, it talks about he was moved with deep anger. At, and it was anger and grief at the suffering of what death caused. Because he was there and he saw and he loved these people and he saw and experienced, you know, the the pain of death. And this is not what he wanted. This was not how he created us to be. And so it was that deep movement of with us in that suffering. And then there there's still beauty that he can create from it, but he's not doing it to us. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. and I think that in all of this, though, without community, people stay in this organization. And for me, my, I have a hard time asking for community or telling someone I'm suffering. I feel like that's the church. And the church, I'm fairly new to this congregation, so, but I think the church in general has dropped the ball. Mm -hmm. And reaching out, I think this life group thing is the bomb. I mean, seriously, I keep joining more and more life groups because I listen to it. <laughs> 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 I'm 
Totally agree. That's uh, a perfect way to close this out. But again, one maybe one of the dichotomy, false dichotomies that Lee Count would love us to break down is individual faith versus right. uh, communal faith. Right? It, 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 it's, it's, it, we have to do this in community. So, thank you all very much.